when we get to heaven, Paul and I will have to have a conversation, I guess. In Acts 28, the Bible says when he got to the island of Malta, he was shown unusual kindness. And then in Acts 28, 14, and 15, when he met the brethren after the shipwreck and everything that he endured when he arrived at Rome, his heart took good courage as he met those brethren whom he had never met before, and it no doubt changed his life. And I believe that after our weekend, beginning here, Paul and I will have to have a conversation on who was shown a greater degree of kindness, either Paul and Acts 28 or the Kemp family in 2021. We've been grateful to be in your presence, and we look forward to the next few weeks when we can permanently make the transition. We appreciated all the kind words that were spoken to us this morning and just looking forward to what what happens in the future with what God's able to do with us, working together with you here in this area. As we just sung, there's one thing we know for sure. We know who holds tomorrow, and we know his will and all that he's done in the past, and we trust him for the future as well. The word intimacy means the state of being familiar. It involves a close association between two individuals, two different parties. Now, we sometimes use the word intimacy. This may be where we make a mistake. We may limit it to romantic relationships, and surely that's involved. But it's far more to biblical intimacy than merely being in a romantic relationship one with another. There are many friends in the Bible and different individuals and families that are close one with another and enjoy a certain camaraderie and a tight-knit relationship one with another. And above all, every one of us, every child of God, should desire intimacy with God. A close relationship one with another as we draw near to God and as God draws near to us. We should want said of us what's said about several individuals in Scripture. I'm thinking about Enoch in Genesis 5, 22 and 24, that he walked with God. And what does that mean? It means that his relationship was so closely knitted to his maker that it was as if they were strolling together through life. He literally walked with God. Think about people in Scripture of whom it said they shared a close connection with God. Abraham's called God's friend, James 2 and verse 25. God says about Job, he fears God and he refrains from evil. Moses knew God face to face like a man would speak with his friends. And there are other individuals of whom we read of their rich and deep relationship, or we could say their intimacy with God. But, you know, few people in Scripture had as close and as deep a relationship with God, especially in the Old Testament, as King David. It's said about David that he was a man after God's own heart, 1 Samuel 16 and verse 7. David was so faithful as king that God promised him that his kingdom, his the reign of his lineage would last forever. Psalm 132 and verse 11 and 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. And that ultimately would be fulfilled in Jesus. But the point still stands that David as a monarch and as a king was so faithful to God that God said there's never been another one like him. And through David, I will do special things. And when we turn our Bible to Matthew chapter one, the first verse says that Jesus is in the family of both David and Abraham. David enjoyed a special in intimacy with God. He penned many of the Psalms and the Psalms are a praise book and a prayer book. But they're David crying out to God and many of them about how much he loves God. Psalm 18 and verse one. I love you, O Lord, my strength as David is saying, God, I want to enjoy a close relationship with you. But tonight, if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 139, because I think what we'll see in Psalm 139 is that not only was David a man after God's own heart, but God was also a God after David's heart. God was interested in developing this rich and deep and close relationship with David. And as David writes this psalm, as his name is in the heading, what we find is that intimacy with God 
involves appreciating the deep relationship that we can have with him as we draw near to him. This psalm answers the big omni-questions about God's relationship with humanity. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's omnipotent. He can do anything, and he's omnibenevolent. And that he is all good and all loving. David exposes all of these things to us about God in this psalm. But what I want us to see tonight is that what was true about David in Psalm 139 can and must be true about you and about me. God loves us. He wants to draw near to us. and He wants us to draw near to him. Five ways tonight that we enjoy intimacy with God. Five ways that we already have this or that we can cultivate and further develop it. And that God wants us to richly enjoy this. Number one. Appreciate that God is conscious of all of our ways. Psalm 139, verse 1, David says, O Lord, you search me and know me. You know my down-sitting, you know my uprising. He says that you are acquainted with all of my ways in verse 3. You compass me or you winnow me, some translations have, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. There's not a word on my tongue, O Lord, you know it all together. You beset me behind and before you lay your hand on me. In verse six, David's just blown away with God's knowledge. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain. The first thing David says that makes his relationship with God rich and deep and intimate is that God is conscious of all his ways. Some commentators believe that David penned the words of Psalm 139 as a response to his accusers. You know, David was often under much distress as people would say things and do things to try to antagonize him. I'm thinking about his relationship with Saul in 1 Samuel 23 and verse 11. As Saul says things about David, unrighteous things, that David was trying to usurp the throne. Or later, when his son Absalom tried to take over the kingdom in 2 Samuel 18. And some people believe that David is writing this psalm in response to those that would attack his integrity. And he is saying, God, you know me. You know what type of life I've, I've lived. You know everything about me. And that may very well be true. But it may also be true that David is merely writing this psalm, not under any special circumstance, but in praise for God's amazing knowledge just in general, not relating to one specific situation. David says, God, you know me four times in these six verses. Would you circle these or underline these in verse one? You have searched me and know me. This Hebrew word, Yadah, it means to know, to have close relationship with. He uses the word in verse one. But then notice again in verse two, you've searched me and known me. That's what he says in verse one. But, you know, my down sitting and my uprising. That's the second. No, in verse two. He mentions it again in verse four. There's not a word on my tongue. And Lord, you know it all together. And then in verse six, such knowledge, you know me. It's too wonderful for me. Four times in six verses, David says to God, you've got me down pretty good. You know me well. God knows everything about him. Verse one is really the summary verse of the psalm. God knows us, period. He knows when we get up and when we lie down. This language is similar to that which we find in Deuteronomy six, six through nine. We're to teach children when they get up and when they lie down and when they walk by the way. And as much as we should do that with equal knowledge, God knows us intricately and he knows everything about our lives. Now, if we're God's people, this shouldn't cause us to be fearful, but we should be filled with praise because God's eyes are always on us. And that means he's always protecting us more about that later. But David appreciates this reality and it brings him great joy as he thinks about God knowing everything about him. Notice verse four. If David says something. Or he thinks about saying something. God knows that too. Behind and before, there's this hedge around him in verse 5. God's there too. And in verse 6, David's blown away. Oh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are your judgments and your ways beyond finding out. Romans 11 and verse 33. That's what David knows. 
Some people believe the smartest man in the world right now is a man named Christopher Langan. He's what they call an autodidactic. That means he's a self-taught man and he's a rancher. He's not any Ph.D. scholar. They say if your IQ is above 130, you're pretty smart. I've never taken an IQ test because we don't have to worry about how smart or foolish we are. Some of us just know, right? His IQ is between 195 and 210. He's off the charts. But the sad thing is, is he's never really done anything special in his life. Not really. Because the people that know him best say, oh, Christopher's a genius. He can learn anything. He can teach himself anything. But he doesn't really do well with face-to-face interactions. His relationships are off. He can memorize a book. He can build anything. He can make anything. He can't relate to people. He knows some. He doesn't know all. God is the only know-it-all that there really is. And David says, here it is in Psalm 139, 1 through 6. He's acquainted with all my ways. He knows everything about me. And for David and for the child of God, that's great news. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Proverbs 15, 3. His eyes go to and fro throughout the earth as he observes the patterns and ways of men. Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9. He searches the heart and he tries the reins to give to every individual what they're due. Jeremiah 17 and verse 10. Though people may misunderstand us or even misapply things to our character and our behavior. One thing we can say in similar to Job's language in Job 16 and verse 19. My record is on high. What was Job saying to his friends? It doesn't matter what you say about me. God knows who I really am. That's great news. But it's also challenging news. May 16, 1929. They held the first Academy Awards. There were 250 people. It was a small dinner in the Roosevelt Hotel in the Blossom Room in Hollywood, California. For the first time, at least in recent memory, individuals were awarded and praised for their ability to pretend. Here's an award because we thought you were really good at being something that you're not. The Bible says don't try it. Not only can we not fool God, but such is unnecessary. He knows us. David says he knows me intricately. He knows what I think and what I say and what I'm thinking about saying. He knows me. And so that should change our lives and our interactions with him. Before we move on to number two, here are a few things that should happen in responding to God's comprehensive knowledge. Number one, be open and honest in prayer. Psalm 62 in verse 8 says, trust in God with all your heart. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. God knows what's in our heart. It makes no difference. It does no good to come before God and to pretend, to heap up phrases, empty phrases, to make us sound or appear religious. God already knows us. And so we should just come out with what we want. It's like children, you know, when they come in and they say, well, you look real nice, Dad. And Mom, your hair looks good. You say, well, just get to it. What is it that you really want? I know what it is you want. You can't fool me. Don't butter me up. Don't butter God up. Praise, absolutely. Adoration, most assuredly. But we can come before God boldly because he reads our hearts. He knows what's there. But also this comprehensive knowledge should cause us to confess quickly when we err. First John 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession in the Bible of sin has never been about information with God. It is more like an inspection of our hearts as God peers in and he says, I want to see how sincere these individuals are. I know you've messed up. You're not giving me any news. I just want to see if you'll come clean. Are you really sincere about changing your ways and repenting? This idea of God knowing us intricately and being conscious of our ways should cause us to confess. Confess when we err, but also to do so quickly because God sees it immediately. Also, this idea of God's comprehensive knowledge should cause us to live like God sees. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 12, 14, that he'll bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or evil. 
You say, God sees me. God knows me. God's protecting me. But God knows what we do in the dark and in the light. We shouldn't be too preoccupied with the opinions of men. You know who knows you best? God. The good news is he can never sin against you. We don't have to prove anything to anybody. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 3, it is a small thing that I should be judged of you. There's one lawgiver who's able to save and to destroy, James 4 and verse 12. When we realize how deeply God knows us, that makes us happy. That should bring us joy. But it should also cause us to not be preoccupied with what other people think about us. The one that knows everything knows us best, and that's what counts the most. Two more. We should get closer to God. Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Romans, James 4 and verse 8. God wants to be close to us and he wants us to be close to him. And then the last thing, this should cause us to praise God for his amazing knowledge. Isaiah says in chapter 40, verses 13 and 14, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's instructed God? Who did God ever have as a tutor? When we think about all that God knows about everybody in the universe, we should burst forth into praise as David does in this psalm because we're impressed with who he is and what he knows about us. The first thing about intimacy with God, this is where it begins. God knows us. He's conscious of our ways. It was said before we began tonight that the very hairs of our head are all numbered. Matthew 10, 29 through 31. And though some of us have more to number than others, it's all numbered. It's accounted for. God sees us and he's aware. David says, I'm excited. I'm close to God. And God has taken knowledge of me. Now, here's number two. We should appreciate that God is constantly present. If verses one through six show us that God is omniscient and he knows everything, verses seven through 12, which are very familiar to us, show us that God is omnipresent and he's everywhere. Notice verse seven. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, the old King James has hell or the depths of the grave, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and make my dwelling place in the depths on the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say the darkness will cover me, even that'll be light. And then in verse 12, he says, darkness and light are synonymous to God. It really makes no difference. As you read through verses 7 through 12, what becomes apparent is this. Any place you can think of, David says, yes, he's there too. And what if I went to heaven? He'd be there. And what if I went to Sheol, the realm of the dead in the Old Testament? God would dwell there, too. And if you took the wings of the morning and dwelt in the uttermost, he's there, too. You couldn't escape him. Think in the Bible of all of the places that we find God that we probably wouldn't expect. Some places we would and other places may surprise us. Genesis 3 and verse 8, he walks in the garden in the cool of the day. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah encounters God in the belly of a fish. He prayed and he believed that he could be heard, and he was. He was in prison with Joseph several times in Genesis 39. In verse 2, in verse 3, in verse 23, it says God was with Joseph. He went to prison even with Joseph. He was there. But even in human flesh. The last place people on earth would expect to see God is in tabernacle flesh. But John 1.14 says he took on flesh and dwelt among us. And yes, he's there too. David says, I'm grateful to God. We share an intimacy because God's in every place all the time. I don't know if you know what a helicopter parent is or if you are a helicopter parent, but it means somebody who, or at least what experts say, a helicopter parent is somebody who they would consider to be overly obsessed with parental involvement. And maybe this person wants to live vicariously through their child, you know, they're 
imagining themselves in Little League football all over again. And they're going to live through Johnny. They're going to just be who he is, right? And maybe there are some good things about that, being involved and being in a place where your children can reach you. But there would also be some bad things about that. If you would rob a child of his or her independence and ability to grow and mature and develop. But appreciate what we have in Psalm 139 is not a helicopter God. I know these verses are often used to suggest, well, you just couldn't get away from God. And if you did something really bad. But I know David views all of this as positive. Notice verse 10. Even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. In David's mind, this is great news because God is present. And you know from the Old Testament sometimes in David's life when the truth of these verses would mean a great deal. One day he stood before a Philistine giant and he needed to know in that moment that God was present. When he was on the run from Saul in and around the caves of En he needed to know that those caves and the mountains didn't separate him from his God. When he was driven from his home as Absalom raised the coop and tried to usurp the throne, he needed to know Psalm 139, 7 through 12 was true. Even there, God was with him and he was not abandoned. Poon Lim was 23 years old, 24 years old, excuse me, and he was stranded in the Atlantic Ocean. For 133 days, it's still the world record for the man that was stranded at sea for the longest amount of days and yet emerged alive. He was he had no seafaring experience. Tragedy struck and he wound it up adrift at sea. The historians say he survived as he collected water in his rain jacket. He would catch live fish. They say on one occasion he caught a shark and the shark was still alive and he beat it to death with a container and chopped it up in pieces for survival. He did whatever he had to do to survive, to live. 133 days later, he was still alive. Out there in the sea, all by himself, he lived to be somewhere up in his late 80s, early 90s. But according to David, he didn't spend one of those 133 days by himself because even God, even then, God was with him and God was present. David says, you're everywhere. And for me, that's great news. Isaiah 43, verses 2 through 3, God says, When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the fires, they won't burn you or kindle a flame. I'll be with you. Isaiah 41, in verse 10, God says, I'm with you. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. I am the Lord your God. I will be with you. I will uphold you by my right hand and strengthen you and help you. The New Testament bears this out. Matthew actually bookends his gospel with this idea, the presence of God. Jesus is God with us. Matthew 1, 23 through 25. And then the last verse of the book says, lo, I'm with you always, even till the end of the age. Matthew says God is with you in the flesh, but even in his departure, you couldn't escape him. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 says, I will never leave you nor abandon you. And for God's people, that's encouraging news. God's always going to be with us. We'll get to spend time with him in eternity in heaven. But though God is in heaven now, we're separated by distance. Proximity is nothing to the one who made the world, who hung the stars, the sun and the moon. How do you think? How long do you think it takes to make a friend? Somebody said the formula for making friends is simple. Get around a lot of people. Find some people you like. Form a bond. You have a friend. Christopher Hall, a professor of relationships at the University of Kansas, has been studying friendship for decades. And in a journal article that he published, he said there are levels to cultivating deep and true and rich friendship. He says, if you meet a stranger and you spend somewhere between 20 to 40 hours with that person in the first few weeks, you'll have what he calls a casual friend. But if you want to step it up from there, he says you will have to go from 80 to 100 hours and then you would graduate from a casual friend to what Mr. Hall calls a friend. 
And then he says, if you can get up to 200 hours of quality time with somebody, you have a best friend or a friend for life. No wonder after 25 years, Abraham is called the friend of God. Psalm 73, 28, Asaph says, it was good for me to draw near to God. And we add to that. Amen. And us, too, not just you. God is near to those who call to him, all of those who call on him in truth. Psalm 145 in verse 18, the omnipresent God says, I want to be near. I want to be close. I want us to cultivate a friendship and a relationship. But that takes time. And so it matters that we worship God and that we have rich and vibrant devotional lives, because the point is from David in Psalm 139, 7 through 12, is we have ample opportunities. And if we don't draw near to God, it's not because we've liked the chance to do so. If there is a distance between our maker and us as his individuals that bear his image and that have been created, the fault doesn't lie with him. In the heavens, he's there. In Sheol, he's there. Across the sea, he'd be there. And even tonight, he can be in our midst if we would allow him to do so. Here's number three. David says that he is created and he's sustained. The Bible begins with this idea, and you might expect this part of the psalm to be in the beginning, but David just merely echoes what's already been said. Everything that David has said thus far is true because of this reality. And so the Bible begins with Moses saying that God created man in his own image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He breathed into our nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living, living soul, Genesis 2 and verse 7. And David picks up on this idea in Psalm 139, 13 through 18. God knows everything. Verses 1 through 6. He's omniscient. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. Verses 7 through 12. But God is omnipotent and all powerful. In verses 13 through 18. Notice the text in verse 13. We are crafted and made by God, knit together in our inner parts. Verse 14. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Verse 15. God takes the lowest of the low and creates the highest of the high. He formed us in the lowest parts of the earth. Verse 16 says we're written down in his book. And once David has said all of those things, what do you expect is except to have him praise in verse 17 and 18 as he appreciates how magnificent his maker really is. David says, I'm created and I'm sustained. Verses 13 through 18 fly in the face of evolutionary propaganda, pseudoscience that says we're here by slime and chance. David says, think again. You're here because God crafted you and made you. It's not an accident. He made man upright. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 29. He made us as the crown of his creation. Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5. David says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you visit him? You've made him lower than the angels, but then you've crowned him with glory and honor. Psalm 8, verses 4 and verse 5. We're made in his image. Genesis 5 and verse 1. David says, the God that I serve is everywhere. He knows everything about me. And he's taken special interest in me. There are at least two times where the Bible says God knew an individual before they were born. It's said about Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 and verse 5, and it's also said about Paul in Galatians 1 and verse 15. That doesn't mean that we pre-existed in some life before this one, but it does mean that there's nothing that we're going to do that's going to be news to God. God knows us so deeply. He knew us before we ever drew our first breath, and he cared about us even then. We matter to God because he creates us and sustains us. The world starts working on us on this point very early on. Not only somebody says, well, of course, that we've evolved. That's part of this. But notice what David says in verses 13 and 14. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The world starts attacking this as early as it can. You're too skinny. No, you're too fat. You're too short. Do you have a complex? No, you're too tall. Come down to size. 
You're too dark-skinned, too light-skinned. Your nose is too big. Your hair is too long. You know God made you a boy. You really should have been a girl. Or maybe you're a girl. You should have been a boy. David says none of those things could be true. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. God has no recalls, no mistakes. He did it right the first time. God doesn't just say through David, well, okay, God created you. You are right. He says you're better than that. You're fearfully and wonderfully made just as you are. Because the creator who made us is the greatest potter known to man. Isaiah 64 and verse 8 says that we are the clay. He's the potter where all the work of his hands and as one man has said, God don't make junk. This this doesn't make us arrogant. It makes us confident. God made me. I'm here on purpose. God's my maker. I'm here with a purpose. He's my master and I'm his masterpiece. Zechariah 2 and verse 8 says that we're the apple of his eye. We're created in the image of God and that makes a difference. And it should allow us to hold our heads up high. We can look into the mirror of God's word or to the mirrors in our homes and say, I'm made just as God wants me to be. And that makes all the difference in this world. Number four, David says, we draw near to God because we have a common enemy. Now, here's where most people would want to veer off from David on this psalm or maybe not have this part read. There are some psalms that are imprecations, psalms that include cursing of enemies. And some people feel uncomfortable with this type of terminology. And they say, well, what do we do with this part of the psalm? But if you appreciate all that David has said thus far, this does not surprise us. In verse 19, he says, surely God will slay the wicked. Therefore, depart from me, you bloody men. They speak evil against God and they also take his name in vain. He says, I hate them that hate you. And those that rise up grieve me. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. David is not just close to God and the things that he loves about God and the benevolent acts that God performs on his behalf. But he's also repulsed by that which God is repulsed by. And so when we find a list like the one we find in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, six things God hates, seven are an abomination to him. What should happen to us if we're going to enjoy this intimacy, this closeness, this familiar relationship? You and I must be able to plug our name into Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 and do no damage to the text. A lying tongue we must despise. Hands that shed innocent blood, feet that are swift to run into mischief, those that will sow discord or disharmony among the brethren. If we're going to be God's people, we must not only love what he loves. We must also hate what he hates. As elementary as it is, Amos had to tell people in the days when he preached, hate the evil and love the good. Amos 515. Paul picks up on it in Romans 12 and verse nine and says, abhor or despise that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. God's been telling his people that over and over again. And we never graduate from the spiritual classroom in which we need to hear that because this is what the devil wants to do. He doesn't merely want us to love unrighteousness. He'll settle for us merely thinking it's really not that bad. So David's words are forced for on purpose. They're not just some bad guys out there. David says the Philistines, all of these individuals that are physical enemies to Israel, they're against God's plan. And so if they're against God, David realizes they're against me. Now, how does this apply to us in the new covenant age? We wouldn't take up arms against anybody physically to promote God's cause. But Paul does say in Second Corinthians 10, three through five, we are in spiritual warfare. And it's our goal and our desire to bring every thought into obedience and submission to Jesus Christ. And so what we want to say to people that are behind enemy lines, so to speak, as they are not God's friend and need to be reconciled. We want you to repent and become Christians. We want to confront you with the reality of the gospel and what sin is doing in your life and in love and with truth to say there's a God who desperately loves you and wants to save you. You're worse than you ever imagined, but yet more love than you could ever dream. God wants you to come over and be a friend. Because he'll save you from sin, but not in sin. And so you have to change. 
David says, if they're God's enemies, they're my enemies. If we're going to be God's individuals, if we're going to be his family, his people, we can love what God loves, and that's great, but we also have to share this common enemy and hate who and what God hates. And the human race has no greater enemy than Satan himself, who would desire to separate all of us from the love of God and have us to forfeit our souls for all of eternity. But Jesus came to defeat him on our behalf, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, and to deliver us as a result. And so we must not become allies with the one that Jesus died to deliver us from. We, like David, must share a common enemy with God. Here's the fifth and final one tonight. David says, cleanse me and correct me. Now, if you write in your Bible, you might draw a line or an arrow from verse 1 down to verse 23 because David ends where he began. He begins in verse 1 by saying, oh, Lord, you've searched me and known me. But then in verse 23, in the imperative, he commands God to perform this investigation. He says that God will do it in verse 1. But then in verse 23, he invites God to do it. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts or my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love this part of the psalm. What David invites God to do is what God will do anyway. God will not collect a search warrant to enter into our hearts. He'll just come in. He doesn't need our permission. He's fashioned them and made them. But what David invites, what David calls for is an open and honest examination because he realizes the people that he just cursed in verses 19 through 22. If he's not careful, he, too, can become an enemy of God. And so he says, I want to make sure I'm getting this right. Would you invite this kind of investigation from God? Psalm 17 and verse three says, prove me and try me and you'll find nothing. Psalm 26 and verse 2 says, try me, test the reins, the deep inner recesses of my heart and see what's inside of me, God. That's what David wants. And we all know that David often fell and fell fast and hard. But I believe his statements like Psalm 139, 23 to 24, this sincerity of heart that brought David back, that when he was confronted with his own unrighteousness, David could say, I've messed up. I've really messed up. But I want God to correct me and put me in the way that's everlasting. I want God to put me in the right place and to lead me in the plain path. In a similar psalm penned by David as well in Psalm 19, 13 and 14, he says, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I'll be innocent from the great transgression. He says, I want you to let me know what I should do and do the right things because David doesn't want to become God's enemy. He wants to be searched and tried and known by God. And he wants God to correct him when it's necessary. The David that we find in Psalm 139 is a David that says, God, cleanse me and God, correct me. I know you're going to tell me what's right. Who better to correct us? Who has our best interests at heart than the God that he's already said knows everything about us, who created us and fashioned us? He's going to do things right. I was preaching in Lakeland once. I was telling them I dislocated my shoulder in high school playing high school football. And then one time I went to church camp and my shoulder popped out of place as I was playing a game called Gaga Ball. It's pretty much like dodgeball. My shoulder came out of place and I had some friends there and they said, don't worry about this. It's not a problem. We know how to put these things back in place. Well, I had the yin and yank twins pulling on my shoulder and it got hard and stiff and they couldn't get it back in place. They had to take me to the hospital and eventually anesthesia was applied and then I was put to sleep and the shoulder was put back in place. Here's the question. When you and I need to be corrected, who do you want? Do you want the yin and yank twins or do you want anesthesia? David says, I know there'll be times. I know I'm not perfect. I know I'll be corrected. 
Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 19, 14. And when those times come, when I really need to be corrected, God, I want you and you alone to do it. Psalm 51, 4. Against you and you only have I sinned. When David was in peril in First Chronicles and he had his choice to pick for his punishments, he said, let me fall into the hands of God Almighty. Let me fall into the hands of the one who loves me most, who loved me best. The only one who's ever really loved me to death. Cleanse me and correct me. I don't want to hide from you. I can't. I don't want to lie to you. It's impossible. You know me deeply. And when I make mistakes, because I'm frail and human, I will. Would you show me the right way so that we can quickly remove the separation or the sin that causes that separation and enjoy our intimacy once more or have this continual relationship? Whereas I walk in the light, though I don't have a ready recollection and a catalog of all of my transgressions, the blood of Christ continues to cleanse me. First John one and verse seven. And our fellowship is never disrupted. That's the relationship I want, David says. And that's what we should want as well. It is the goal of every child of God to walk closely to God, to enjoy a rich relationship with him, to be like David and to say, I'm a man or a woman after God's own heart. But to also appreciate that he's a God that's after your heart as well. God wants to be close to us. All of the information that we've read tonight, it doesn't make God a spy or a nosy God. It makes him a sovereign God who wants to be near to his people and he wants us to be near to him. Maybe tonight you need to obey the gospel. We stand ready to help you with that. Maybe tonight you need the prayers of God's people. Your heart may be filled with anxieties, as David mentioned at the end of the psalm. You may be weighed down with cares and with struggles, and we stand ready to assist you with that as well. If this is your invitation tonight, if we can help you, come now as together we stand and as we sing.